Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. And he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising object oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week it's boxes. Which is all about the contents of boxes. It's about what you put in boxes and why. For me, it's all about coffins and mass burial. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis and you can follow me at James Daybell. We're proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other great shows coming soon. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 9 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio-googling through history, exploring the history of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like the history of the wave, the gesture, even the closet. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history, and crucially, how those histories are linked in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of the horn was all about infidelity and challenges to male honour? I didn't know that. You didn't know that. We will learn about that in weeks to come. Or that the history of stairs is all to do with the history of private life and social status. Or, quite practically, it's about living on different levels. It is, and the history of height, which is part of it. I love that. Uh, The man sitting opposite me is the yeoman of yesteryear. It's Professor James Daybell. Brilliant. Hello, and the man sitting opposite me is the excavator of epilogues. (laughs) It's Dr Sam Willis. Together we will be piloting you on this uncharted, frankly highly dangerous and unpredictable flight into the past. Each week one of us will take the lead and this week it's the turn of Professor James Daybell. James, what have you got for me? Well, this week I have something very special for you indeed. We are going to talk about the history of boxes. Boxes? Boxes. Wow. Okay. If I say, what what is the history of the box to you, completely off the top of your head, what what are you thinking? Um, I'm immediately thinking packaging. Mm-hmm. Um, to start with, uh, which links with industrialisation and mass market and things like cardboard, uh, other packaging, bubble wrap. And we did bubbles as well. Didn't we did bubbles. Mention, we didn't, didn't mention, mention bubble wrap. But, but um, so that's, that's very great. satisfying sound. <laughs> it is. Pop it. Um, I'm thinking luggage, trunks, 
the difference between carrying ones. We have those wheelie ones now, don't we? But everything, everyone used to have trunks, which were essentially big boxes. Then I'm going to think about security. So it's all very well mm. having a box, but it's better if you can keep your box safe. So locksmiths, history of locksmiths. Ah, history of locks. And um, coffins. Coffins. Boxes for people. Also significantly is what you put in boxes. Yeah. Now, I have a very special box okay. for you today, and I've been hiding this from you. It is on the top shelf up here. I will reach up, and I shall bring it down and wow. present it to you. Well, that's very cool. What do you think of that? <laughs> that is a... It's, you may open it. Thank you. It's a, it's a box that's covered in material. So it's um, beautifully... It's a box that's designed to be looked at as much as have things stored in, I would say. Um, it's a bit rough and ready. Um, it's been around a while and, oh my God, it is completely full of letters. Um, it's stuffed with letters. Uh, so it's, it's, it's long, it's rectangular, and the box is exactly the right width for a letter. So that is a letterbox. It is a, it's a memory box. It's a letterbox. Do you want to know where it came from? Yes. I want to know everything it was found it. on a skip. No. By a student of mine at Plymouth University. No. He turned up at the beginning of this year and he said, Professor Daybell, um, I've got some letters I'd like to, to show you. Well, he emailed me and I said, well, you know, somebody who, who's interested in letters. I said, well, fantastic, bring them along. And I, I wasn't expecting, I wasn't expecting anything. And he turned up and he presented me this. His father owns a skip company in Surrey, mm. they were doing a house clearance, and this was what they found. On a skip, it was discarded, and it came into the property of my student about six years ago. I've read the dissertation based on Oh, that. the photographs are here. The photographs we have here a little, if you see here, we have a little, um, cat a little badge, a cat badge, from the front of a Royal Navy cap. That's a really cool photo, look at that. That's not even a photograph, it's a... It's a negative. And what we have, these letters, we haven't been able to trace the family, we, my, my student tried, but what we have is about three to four hundred letters addressed to Miss Helen Dare, who lived in Surrey, um, in Hazelmere, mm -hmm. um, between the period of the Second World War, and most of the letters that you've got are from a sweetheart, Mr. George Tweddle, mm -hmm. um, writing to her home. And I think what we what we have here is an absolutely fascinating uh, example of a box that is connected to the raw materials of history, that is connected to preservation. This is a personal archive. So what we can look at here is the box as a receptacle for the raw materials of history. Mm -hmm. It's connected to memory, it's connected to memorialization. The only reason that we have these letters is because this woman was based on the home front, the letters were coming to her, and most of the letters are addressed to her, not all of them by, by George Tweddle, but they are, you know, they're, they're preserved because she was in one place and not on the, you know, and, 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 and I think her letters to him on the front would be much more difficult you know, to be to be preserved, although, you know, often the, these are preserved. So it's very much one side of the story. It's very much one side of the story, but also 
these would have been lost had they not been preserved on, you know, taken from the skip, they would have just been trashed and destroyed. That period of history, that particular relationship that they expose would have been gone forever. And so the way that I'm thinking about this is that it links with archives, processes of saving, about filtering material. This is a very intentional act of preserving a particular form of history, a particular kind of memory. And it's interesting, being a historian, when you go into archives, so often you are presented with boxes full of letters, but those boxes have been um, created probably in the 20th century to preserve letters. But here we've got someone doing their own their own archive, aren't they, for the benefit yeah. of their own they're memory? Doing, they're doing their own archive. And what's interesting is... I have a very good friend who was a former county archivist in, in Devon and talking to him about his job over the last sort of 30 or 40 years, he recalls stories of being called in by law firms to go in and have a look at all their materials, all their documents that have, that have, that have survived. And you're, you know, he talks about going into a room with masses and masses and masses of material. You're talking about thousands, hundreds of thousands of documents. And he, go, he, he would go through that, sorting through, collecting these things at almost at random. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is, when you have a vast archive like that, like that it can't all be, be kept. So you have to have some kind of policy that makes a decision about what you choose to keep and what you choose not to keep. And this is, ab this is absolutely vital at the heart of history, what, what is preserved, what is not. You know, we often hear about history being written by the victors. What that's often about is it's about the, the kinds of archives, the kinds of archival narratives that can be told and the kind of documents that, that survive. State archives are often very, very powerful archives that, have been, that, are, that are kept precisely to document the history of the state. Yeah, well, the, 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 the wrong assumption to make is that all of the state's letters have been kept yeah, uh, yeah. for posterity because they haven't. No. And everything has gone through an editing process. And interestingly, when I opened this box, I suddenly thought, oh, she's kept all of her letters. Yeah. But I bet she hasn't. No, no. That's, this has that's, been edited. Yes. These are her favourites. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, it, and, what, and what's interesting and what you, can't often, what you can't often reconstruct is what's been thrown away. No. And that's often, often much more telling. But it's the same as reading the letter themselves. You've got to not just read the words on the page, you've got to read, read between the lines as well, don't you? And yeah. that's, that's all yeah. part of being a historian. Yeah. What I love about this is, is that um, this is, just to explain, the, 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 the box is long and thin and rectangular, and it is exactly the same width as a letter. And what that says to me is that uh, I think someone's making and selling um, letter yeah. memory boxes. Yes, yeah. yeah. That's. Um, Someone's someone's kind of cashed in with the idea here and made a very very attractive box in which to keep your your most uh, a treasured correspondence. Yeah, and what what's interesting is that these kinds of archives are not in record offices. They're not in stately homes whose families have been around for years and they've got you know specific muniments rooms to collect these materials these are personal archives the kinds of collections of letters that probably a lot of our listeners are very familiar with yeah. and have and have at home collections of 
letters from maybe the First World War, maybe the Second World War that are passed on as family heirlooms. And there is a real importance of keeping hold of those because you are capturing the memories of generations. You know, generations that will soon, you know, within the next few decades will be, you know, will, will be lost, will be gone. And there's a real imperative to preserve that kind of heritage. Yeah, I mean, the, this box itself is such a clear reminder of it because it's got damp. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a telling side of, it's like a, you know, it's, huge, it's been a water spillage or, or it's, it's got sucked in damp either outside or, or up in an attic somewhere. And it's been in the skip as well, so it's... Yeah, but the box has protected the letters. It's yeah. done its job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's not just about it, it looking good and having it up on your mantelpiece above the fire or whatever. Um, it, it's serving a practical purpose. So these letters are actually double protected. They're, they're inside the box, but they're also inside the envelope. Yeah. So they're kind of they're two layers of skin you've got to you know get past yeah. uh, to look at them. Have you ever worked at the um, at the the National Archives in that wonderful collection, the Royal Admiralty Papers? I have. That is the I had a I had the fortune to be to go in and do some consultancy work with them for a workshop they were doing on this. And the papers are incredible. You know, you've got there, um, you know, basically an unadulterated archive, as you know, mm-hmm. much better than I do. These are ships seized post bags that many of these letters, probably a hundred thousand of them, many of them are unopened. Yeah. You know, and you've got you've got that sense of sort of serendipity and, and an archive that hasn't been tampered with. I mean I also I mean, you're thinking about the archive, I still vividly remember my first day at the National Archives when I was just in my PhD. And I had no idea what to expect. I'd gone up to look at a ship's log from 1780 something. And um I I couldn't describe to you what I was expecting. I had never seen a photograph of one. Um, I had no idea at all. And the boxes, when you get them, are very, they're plain, kind of acid-free yeah. boxes. Um, it's pretty unattractive. Mm. And you're sitting in a room which is pretty unattractive, mm. which is disappointing because you imagine an archive to be sort of like a walnut-walled library. Um, but it's a bit like sitting in an airport. Mm. Um, but I remember how exciting that was when I, I know, opened up the boring box. It's, it's, it's like archivists have specifically designed it to be as exciting as possible for historians because all of the boxes are uniform in colour and shape and size, but they all contain something unique, yeah. um, which is wonderful. So you can have a big, boring brown box, but in it can be a diary the size of a wallet. Yeah, you know, kind of yeah. rattling around inside it. Sometimes yeah. big, sometimes small. Sometimes they're just um, sheets of papers. And, and uh, still, for me, opening those boxes is one of the most exciting things that I do on a day-to-day basis. It's like Christmas. It almost. is. It is just like I mean, Christmas. The, the history of, of the the archival box is fascinating because it, you know, as you say, it, they are many of them are, are uniform. They are acid-free, so it's about preservation of historical materials. But have you ever seen? Notice the in the Bodleian Library. Down in the bowels of the Bodleian Library, they actually have people whose job, sole job, is basically making tailor-made boxes mm. that fit the rare and early books. That they, you know, they fit them, perfectly, yeah. fit them absolutely perfectly, so that they're so that they're very snug, so that nothing will be will be damaged. So it's it's absolutely pristine. That's part of an ancient tradition, box making. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about. Tell me about your boxes. My boxes? Well, I mean, one of the things that really struck me about this was um, 
coffins, particularly. Have a look at this. This. Boxes for people. Boxes for people, basically. Um, just because I've been reading a bit about the Black Death recently, and I've been uh, doing some work on epidemics. Have a look at that. Describe that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so what we have here is a 3D drawing of a box. Uh, you can actually see through the box. And in it is lying down a... Are we assuming that it's a figure? I'm assuming that's a woman. Um, there is then what looks like a little shield on the top of this box um, and a rope <laughs> that, is, that is connected to a bell. The bell is labelled D and C. What have, what have you got here? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yes, Sam. That, my friend, is a safety coffin. <laughs> I, I, I must admit, I've never heard of a... Safety coffin. Isn't that this a, is unexplored history. A, a brilliant combination of words. <laughs> a safety coffin. Safety coffin. Um, so, uh, in the 18th century, there, there was this kind of rising fear and panic, all linked with epidemics, particularly cholera epidemics. And um, people terrified of being buried alive. Hmm. Um, and the solution was the safety coffin. So if, and obviously this, this is all, all links to the development of medicine. Yeah. And they, they were paranoid that A, you could come back from the dead or that their identification of you, if there's nothing obviously dramatically wrong with you, like you'd had your throat cut, hmm. there was the fear or, or, the, or the belief that, that, that um, medicine had not advanced to a stage where you could actually certify someone was dead, which meant people invented things like safety coffins. And um, there's even... The first ever recorded use of a safety coffin, it was built on the orders of Duke Ferdinand of Brunswick before his death in 1792. So he, um, he had actually had a window installed in his coffin to let in a bit of light, um, an air tube to provide a supply of fresh air, and instead of having the lid nailed down, he had a lock fitted, which uh, actually brings us to the very important question of the history of locks I'm going to talk about in a minute. Um, 
Anyway, in a special pocket of his death shroud, his funeral shroud, he was wrapped in, he had two keys. One for the coffin lid and a second for the tomb door. So he could, like an escapologist, he could get out of his coffin and then he could walk out of his tomb. He could be risen again. So the lock is on the inside? Yes. Allowing him access to it. <laughs> would, would, this is a very silly question, but wouldn't it be dark? Not because he had a window. He had a window? To allow a bit of light. But no, maybe not the tomb, maybe the window's in the tomb. Right, okay. Or maybe there were people lighting candles. Yeah, so these, would, these wouldn't be coffin. this would be before the coffin was buried under the ground. Yeah. Right. Anyway, what interested me about this is, um, this, uh, this, sort of, this was born from the fear of cholera epidemics. And when I think about epidemics, and particularly the Black Plague, uh, the Black Death, the plague, so 1660s, 100,000 people died, you know, a large percentage of, of um, certainly the population of London. Uh, the visions of um, carts rolling around the streets of London with piles of dead bodies. I, I have no idea where I've got this from, but they are... Um, it's kind of an unstructured approach to dealing with the dead, mm. which, which, if you think about it, is unexpected in the mid-1600s. Mm. Mm. Um, and added to that, there are a couple of descriptions of London um, during, uh, during the Black Death. One, one's very interesting. Um, to my great trouble, I met a dead corpse of the plague in the narrow alley, just bringing down a little pair of stairs. I shall beware of being late abroad again. That's Samuel Pepys yeah. walking around London. Yeah. And Daniel Defoe as well. He was, he was a child in London at the time. He describes a man hysterical with grief following the death cart carrying his wife and several of his children. He goes, the cart had in it 16 or 17 bodies. Some were wrapped up in linen sheets, some in rags, some little other than naked or so loose that what covering they had fell from them in the shooting out of the cart and they fell quite naked among the rest. So this very much kind of confirmed my perception of how London and Londoners cope with the Black Death. And... Um, I, I was, uh, no, I, I was then surprised, I think I, I was really surprised when I read in the news recently that with the excavations under London for Crossrail, mm. where there's a massive archaeological project, they found near Liverpool Street a plague, de Black Death Cemetery, mm. but they'd all been buried in pine coffins. Ah. And they'd all been carefully aligned east to west. Goodness me. So... The, the kind of the image I had of, of, people, of, was, of, of was, people being thrown into, into plague yeah. pits, they're called, aren't they? Yeah. Um, yeah. And you get this sense of kind of, of mass burial, mass death. It, it seems to have been much, much more structured. And yeah. the box, as a way of respecting the dead, tidying up, keeping things neat. Also preventing contamination. Ah, uh, yes. Um, so it was there. So, so that's the... Um, that was my take on the box. Well, certainly yeah, well, the box, I mean, the box as coffin as a sort of receptacle connected to memorialization of the dead, connected to the funeral is, you know, is, is, is really, is, is absolutely important. I want to go somewhere else with, uh, with, with the locks. Okay. You know, and, and boxes and locks, you know, and having, um, if you think about, you know, the, the role of the, of the trunk, the trunk that would, the, the lockable trunk that could be used to, you know, to store papers in. We're back to we're back to archive. You know, if we're thinking about the if we're thinking about the household, we're thinking about the study. Somewhere safe to lock away your papers was incredibly important. And I've got another little box 
here. What we have is a wonderful embroidered cabinet. Yeah. Um, from the Whitworth Art Gallery at the University of Manchester. So that's heavily embroidered. It's it's a funny shape, isn't it? It's a kind of a rectangular box with a bit of a roof, is how I would describe it, and very ornately decorated with a couple of cabinet doors on the front, and it's on little legs. Yep. That's, that's another box that's designed to be looked at rather than just to be functional. Yep. And it's also, it, it, it's highly decorative, highly elaborate, but it is also connected to personal papers. And found in this was the following letter. A letter from a teenage girl to herself. What period? As a sort of, as a, as a memorial. We're looking here at a sort of 17th century uh, letters, 16, 1647 here. And I'll read it to you. The year of our Lord being 16, 1657, sorry. If ever I have any thoughts about the time uh, when I went to Oxford uh, as it may be I may when I have forgotten the time to satisfy myself I may look in this paper and find it so it's basically a very early autobiographical uh, document written by her as a teenage girl I went to Oxford in the year of 1654 um, and my being there was two years for I um, I was in there in 1654, um, as I stayed there in 1655, and I came away in 1656, and I was almost 12 years of age. Uh, and she goes on about how, you know, how she sort of had this cabinet made, and the cabinet sort of keeps, preserves a sort of sense of, of, of herself. I mean, this is, this is quite unique in the way in which somebody would have kept this. Yeah, and it's, it's not just about putting random stuff in there. She's putting the most precious things of herself yeah. into that box. It's a, it's a box that, that very much represents her, her beliefs, her loves, her, you know, hopes and fears, I suppose. Hmm. It's a lockable sort of memory memory chest, and the, the lock again is interesting here. So, so on the one hand, you have you have boxes, but then you have locks. And I know that the Romans would not just have a box in which they would lock their most valuable goods, but they'd have a key yeah. which they would lock it up, and then they would wear the key often on a ring, right? And it's key ring. Yeah. Um, so you can be sitting around a table and someone can look at you and they can know that you're wealthy enough to have a box that's locked that's got something valuable in it. Yeah. So then the key and the lock themselves become indicators of status because you can't carry a massive trunk around. But the, lock, the, the key is portable. Which links us to the very interesting history of the lock and the key, ah. which we should do as a future podcast. But it's also about it's about security, it's about property ownership. Yeah, you know. All oh, well, the biggest box things. we own is our house. Yes. So yes. Assuming we did windows, didn't we? we did looking through windows. We, we did. didn't. We didn't do it as in stopping people coming in and out. But the, the biggest box I own is my house. It's got all of my stuff in it, um, and. It's so easy to, to overlook, I think, the, the ritual of locking up. Yeah. And I can leave the house and go about my daily routine in the perfect confidence that everything in my world is at home and is safe. And so that, that act of shutting the door and of locking it um, 
I think is a really important yeah. important part, that, part that, to me. That's the West Country for you. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine if you lived elsewhere, yeah. you, know, you wouldn't be quite well, so... so if, if you lived in LA, you would have a sort of team of, of sort of security guards and dogs and, and, and yeah. a SWAT team ready to pounce. Well, which actually reminded me, I was listening to a, it was a spoof um, meditation podcast and it was, you know, I always thought it was all fine. You are you sitting comfortably, have 10 deep breaths, you know, picture yourself by the beach. Now we'll begin. Did you lock the front door before you sat down? <laughs> <laughs> and then it turned out to be, to be like, you know, a hilarious spoof of the most unrelaxing thoughts that you could possibly have. But um, yeah, the, um, the, the, you know, it's the old chestnut. Did you lock up? No. And within a house, within a large stately home, you know, where you have multiple rooms, multiple keys, multiple locks, who controls those keys, who controls access to different parts of the house, you know, where you've, where you've got bodies of servants, where you've got secretaries and scribes and clerks, you know, that's all about who controls the different sort of power spaces within the household, which is a fascinating history in itself. It is wonderful. And we've been looking at these these highly decorated boxes or one for archive story letters. And also there are, there are, there are those like um, a sailor's chest. Yes. Which, which didn't just contain his most favourite things, they contained everything. Yes. Everything about his life went into it. And, and what I love about them is that they were multi-purpose. So mm. it's not just a box for keeping stuff in. You sit on it, um, you can use it for eating on, you can stand on it. And for me, they're a tool. Yeah, yeah, multifaceted tool. Yeah, yeah. My father, when he was away, when he was away at school and at university, used to sort of pack up a big trunk. The trunk would then be put on a train, would be delivered to the school or to to his college, and then he would go. He would actually hitchhike, you know, at one point when he when he was at university. But the trunk was the kind of you know was something that was lockable that could travel, you know, without him, um, and convey all of his all of his worldly goods securely and safely you know, to the destination that he wanted. We also have um, purpose-made boxes. I've got you a picture here of a, a pedigree box from the late 17th century, which is, in, which is in the Victorian Albert Museum in London. A pedigree is, if you were of um, a sort of heraldic family, oh, yes. the pedigree would be the, the sort of highly decorative family tree. Scroll. A sort of scroll. There's a wonderful example of this at Powderham Castle that traces the Courtney family. I, I was there uh, a couple of weeks ago and we rolled it out on the table. These are the, these, these are the Earls of Devon and it, it must have been ooh, maybe six metres long um, by about you know a metre wide. Um, they, have it, they have it rolled up in a, in a sort of hessian sack, or some sort of silk sack that the archivist made for them. But, but this example that we have here is a pedigree box that is intended to preserve one of the sort of, you know, the, the quintessential um, authenticating heraldic documents that you would have that established your family title and your lineage, so that, you know, your, your, fa your family history, your family tree. Mm. And again, we're connected back to archives and preservation and what people consider to be the most important things that they absolutely want to preserve. Of course, it's also on vellum, vellum rather than paper. And that's significant. The, the history of paper, we should definitely do a podcast on that. But vellum is, is the kind of, it's the kind of material surface that you find legal documents um, written on because you want them to survive. Yeah. Because paper... 
you know, as we all know, you know, paper doesn't survive quite so well. So, I mean, th- those archives, and the archive box of letters we were talking about, and, and this one, this is about, it's like a stationary thing, though. It's, 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 um, it's something that's put somewhere and it stays there. Yes. Right, but uh, boxes, a lot of the time, are created to allow things to travel. Yes. Aren't they? They, they yes. provide protection. Yes. And it's, it's intimately linked with um, the post, with, with transport. Yeah. Um, with all sorts of things, isn't it? So uh, there's packaging on the one hand, catalogs and his cardboard boxes, but um, you know, more specifically, it, it is it's it's about objects, whatever they are, moving around the world. Yeah. So it's about transport. It's about trade. It's about transmission. Yeah. And um, you know, protection and and care for your precious objects that you can then send away from you. Absolutely. But, uh, you, you sort of entrust, entrust the box, uh, you know, with your goods. And do you trust your memories to a box? I, I trust my memories to a box. I have two, since my daughters were born, I have two boxes on my, one of the top shelves in my, in my study that I, 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 I treasure those memories and I archive those memories of my children as they're growing up. And I, and I have the intention of passing them on. Yes, I, mean, I, I, um, I have a theoretical box. Right. I have more, more, more like piles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we, need, we need to go out after this and we need to buy you some, some, some archival boxes. Oh, no, actually, I do. I've got a wonderful box. It's, it's an old writing box. Okay, so it's, um, it's a big rectangular thing. Uh, it's a writing desk which folds into a rectangular box. So you, you fold half it down. It's like a huge wedge mm. um, of uh, leather bound. So you, you lean on it. And then you've got a little inkwell at the top. But then you can lift it up and you can keep all your papers and secret things in it. So you then hide that and then you, you fold it over. It's brilliant. Um, so I've got a few of my special things in there. But um, a lot of my stuff just lives in plastic boxes in the attic. <laughs> so I need to get some proper boxes, basically. Acid-free boxes. Acid-free boxes. Well, everyone, thank you very much. We've been all over the place. Where have we been with this one? We started with a memory box, an archive box. We've been to... Coffins. Safety coffins. Safety coffins. Everyone get a safety coffin. Cardboard boxes, memory boxes, Sam's special box that he keeps in his <laughs> in in his study, and plastic boxes. Plastic boxes, there we go. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. As always, you are the most important member of this podcast, so please get in touch. Tell us about your boxes, send us photographs of your boxes, and... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. He suggests some ideas for future podcasts, but that's all for now. Thank you very much for listening.